Well, hello there. Welcome to my podcast, Princess and the Pea Survivor Edition, where we talk about healing from adversity and trauma, life's sometimes seemingly impossible tests, and how these ongoing tests impact our relationships with others, as well as the one we have with ourselves. Thanks for being here. My name is Faith Christine Bergevin. You can call me Faith. So what do we mean by unspeakable? Should we even speak now? Are we allowed? In this episode, we explore grief and the different responses people have to those who are grieving, depending on the type of loss. We discuss how the social response to unspeakable losses can make things worse for the one experiencing grief and trauma. Listen now for a mini class on disenfranchised grief and what it takes to get through. When the story is unspeakable, on grief and your unexpected losses. We push away what we can never understand. We push away the unimaginable. By Lin-Manuel Miranda from the song, It's Quiet Uptown in the second act of the Broadway musical, Hamilton. I heard this song, It's Quiet Uptown, years ago, before I saw the show live or even knew the story. When I first listened to the lyrics, really listened, I cried. It hit deep in my gut as it spoke a universal truth to me. Angelica sings about Alexander Hamilton's attempt to heal from the sudden violent death of his son and repair his relationship with his wife. He knows he failed her because of the short-sighted counsel he gave their son about dealing with an adversary, advice that resulted in a fatal duel that ended that young man's life. The song is haunting in the way Angelica, Eliza's sister, observes the couple from afar, and how the townspeople sing their choral echoes as they themselves watch from a distance. The song perfectly encapsulates the isolation of healing from a trauma no one understands nor wants to get close to. In this beautiful song, you can feel this couple going about their lives almost aimlessly in the wake of their loss. Hamilton walking for hours as people watch his hair turn gray. Eliza on her own, empty and unable to engage with him. Nowhere in the song does anyone approach him or her. It is simply Hamilton and Eliza, each alone in their pain. It would appear there is nothing one can do when the worst that can be imagined for a parent has come to pass. What can anyone say? What can anyone do? An unimaginable grief. Grief from a profound loss, and in particular one that is not well understood, is a lonely place to be. It is what is referred to in the psychological literature as disenfranchised. Disenfranchised grief was coined by Ken Doka in the 1980s. It refers to losses in a mourner's life of relationships that are not socially sanctioned. An example might be the death of an affair partner. Aaron Lazar presented two kinds of losses that further differentiate disenfranchised grief. Socially negated or ignored losses, such as pregnancy, either spontaneous or induced, and socially unspeakable losses, meaning that there is social stigma about this particular loss, 
An example here might be death by suicide. In contrast, if someone loses a spouse or a parent, there is usually the social response of condolences and support, as these deaths are socially sanctioned, meaning acceptable or regular experiences of grief. And this is not to diminish in any way the pain associated with these types of losses. But the ones not accepted by society, or ones too painful to imagine, like the loss of the child in Hamilton, these experiences carry a weight that is over and above the grief much of society can understand. It, experiencing this kind of loss can result in the mourner feeling isolated since a significant component is missing in the processing of their grief, that of social support. Disenfranchised trauma. Social support is often absent during recovery from trauma such as sexual assault, rape, or childhood sexual abuse. The isolation this causes can add to grief brewing within, not unlike the examples mentioned above. However, what's different for survivors is that there is no external death that can be pointed to, but instead there is a painful internal death for the multiple losses that have been and continue to be endured. These losses are often strange and sometimes unclear for the survivor, making them hard to define. Recovery is difficult since speaking about their abuse is neither encouraged nor accepted. In the wake of such experiences, I believe we ought to call trauma a person cannot speak about, disenfranchised trauma. It is a trauma that is unspeakable. Judith Herman writes about unspeakable violations in her book, Trauma and Recovery, stating that the atrocities refused to be buried. Her book emerged after decades of working with victims of intimate partner and sexual violence. Herman's words, originally published in 1992, could not be more apt today. Unprocessed trauma, trauma that isn't given a voice, does not stay buried. It only goes underground, ready to come to light at a moment's trigger. Peter Levine says, trauma is perhaps the most avoided, ignored, belittled, denied, misunderstood, and untreated cause of human suffering. When we ignore and devalue a person's traumatic experience, we deny their humanity. Through our inaction, we are communicating that what they lived is not worth supporting or grieving. I would offer, it is the things we don't talk about when faced with a disenfranchised experience that creates more grief. Being forced to remain silent due to an unaccepted experience perpetuates a situation in which the ones who need support the most are denied it. And this social response or lack thereof makes recovery from this kind of trauma doubly painful. The pain is not only due to the initial experience or experiences, but also to the ongoing stigmatizing nature that is caused or maintained by societal repression due to judgment, lack of appropriate information, and the myths that persist about the unspeakable traumas. The disenfranchised nature of trauma creates a sense that survivors are somehow different, almost as if they are put in a separate category from the rest of the world, creating a feeling that they don't belong to the human race. 
this lack of belonging can lead someone to feeling as if they must hide. And as Bessel van der Kolk writes in The Body Keeps the Score, the result is that shame becomes the dominant emotion and hiding the truth, the central preoccupation. The loss of connection to our social world is one of many losses for survivors. We are now different and have now, in essence, been handed the crown of survivor, which means our experience has given us a whole collection of losses that cannot be adequately expressed. Multiple losses. There are many losses when in recovery from a disenfranchised trauma, such as those of a sexual nature. In its wake, we are often alone. There are no flowers, no casseroles being dropped off, no one who understands. Relationships can falter under the weight of a survivor's responses. I found this wonderful article where the researcher articulates the losses so succinctly that I'm compelled to quote her here. In the following quote, the emphasis is mine, um, and I have removed her in-article citations for ease of read, but the link can be found in the footnotes on my essay. I quote, Losses associated with sexual assault are numerous, cumulative, and multilayered. The primary loss is the loss of one's pre-assault life and worldview. There are also a multitude of secondary or accompanying losses that may be both visible, for example, friendship loss, and invisible, for example, loss of trust. Secondary losses in sexual assault include, but are not limited to, loss of trust in self and others, such as beliefs about the goodness of others, loss of identity, self-identity, freedom and independence, loss of control and autonomy, such as in the timing of reporting, loss of a sense of safety and security, loss of positive self-confidence and self-esteem and self-concept, loss of finances and job, loss of social capital, such as friends and social networks or intimate partnerships, and loss of sexual interest and other sex-related losses. Each of these losses can be an essay unto themselves. But there is no denying that once you have been the victim of sexual assault, there are multiple losses, factors in our lives that have changed more than someone who has not had these experiences can possibly understand. I remember a few weeks after the rape, waking up in the morning, feeling that sleepy calmness at first as I was getting conscious and waking up. And then as I fully emerged from sleep into full consciousness, remembering with horror the reality of my new identity. I was now a rape victim. A deep sickness entered me as I could not accept this about myself. Now, this thought, just so you know, does not consume me as it once did. I no longer wake with this thought anymore. It's simply an event that happened one that has had lasting repercussions, but one that no longer defines me as it once, that once did. But back then, it really did. And in my grief, in the aftermath of the assault, I had to come to terms with a new identity, one that came with the loss of my pre-assault life and worldview. 
Despite the disenfranchised nature of our experiences, we as survivors still require support as we navigate our losses and try to make sense of a world that has now changed before our eyes. Simply being able to trust others is a task that can feel terrifying. It requires patience from others, something they may or may not be able to be prepared to give. Even so, support for loss is a basic right or unearned entitlement of survivors. No matter who you are or where you're from, you are deserving of support. We are, because what we've suffered is unimaginable. Life's tests, or how do we go on? During the early days of my recovery, my therapist watched me grapple with grief and loss. He once sat regarding me and with a calm expression said something that has stayed with me ever since. Faith, your suffering has dignity. I remember looking back at him in surprise. Those words said so much. They were just four words. They reminded me that no matter how undignified I felt in my messy and devastated state, there was dignity in showing up every day to face my life, to keep going in the face of trauma and the horrible truths that revealed themselves to me daily. We are allowed to reclaim our dignity, our right to be here, and our sexuality. We are allowed, and I would add encouraged, to release ourselves from the shame that can emerge in the wake of violations to ourselves, to our bodies. No matter what was taken from us before, no one can take our healing away from us now. Even if someone took from us last night, last week, last year, or many years ago, no one can take this away. Our bodies belong to us, even if sometimes it seems that they don't. As hard as it may be, it is our task to reclaim all these parts of ourselves so that we can go on, so that we can recover the pieces that were broken in the wake of a terrible and unspeakable experience. A not-so-silent gesture. Still, there is hope for survivors as we learn about our own triggers and the particular challenges we encounter. Once we begin our process of healing for ourselves, we can learn how to communicate with those in our lives in a way they can perhaps understand, so they can support us without feeling burdened by our story. In It's Quiet Uptown, the lyrics illuminate a path towards healing. There are moments that the words don't reach. There's a grace too powerful to name. We push away what we can never understand. We push away the unimaginable. They are standing in the garden, Alexander by Eliza's side. She takes his hand. It's quiet uptown. It is in this silent gesture where Eliza takes Alexander's hand that she takes the first step towards him, indicating she is moving towards forgiveness. Can you imagine? Say the townspeople. Can you imagine? where healing might lie? Yes, it is here in relationship. In the wake of disenfranchised trauma, it is in relationship that people can continue to heal from a trauma that was caused by relationship. 
yes, we can heal ourselves noticing and being aware of our own triggers and where our darkness lies. But where the healing continues is where it's been sourced in how we connect with others. If we can abolish the disenfranchised nature of this type of trauma and provide survivors with similar acknowledgement and support for our losses, that we give those grieving other more traditionally accepted ones, imagine the kind of world we might live in. Can you imagine? And so it ends. Today, we have lots of footnotes. We have 10. Um, the first two are from J. William Warden's textbook, Grief Counseling and Grief, Ther Grief Therapy, 5th edition. And um, in his book, it's where he's defining what disenfranchised grief is. So he, this is where I cite Kendoka and... Um, Aaron Lazar, who also spoke of disenfranchised grief and different kinds of losses and those that are socially negated and uh, socially unspeakable. So those are the first two footnotes. My third footnote references Judith Herman, MD, and her book, which is entitled in full, Trauma and Recovery, The Aftermath of Violence from Domestic Abuse to Political Terror and 1997. And she uses the word unspeakable on page one in the second sentence. I'm going to read the first two sentences of her introduction. The ordinary response to atrocities is to banish them from consciousness. Certain violations of the social compact are too terrible to utter out aloud. This is the meaning of the word unspeakable. Later, on the next page, she talks about that, there, that these atrocities refuse to be buried. And she says, we realized the power of speaking the unspeakable and witnessed firsthand the creative energy that is released when the barriers of denial and repression are lifted. And this is where she talks about how she received letters from abused women and how their work really helped the women in their healing process. So part of speaking about trauma and recovery is about making the unspeakable speakable so that we can be released from the atrocities that are buried within. My fourth footnote is a quote from Peter Levine. I got it from his website, uh, Somatic Experiencing. And he talks about how trauma is belittled and denied and avoided and basically all the things we do to not see it. And um, if nothing else, this work is really showing us how you know, the experts in trauma, the people speaking about it, are the ones who are trying to bring to light those things that are unspeakable so that we can free ourselves from our traumas and begin to release whatever still lingers in our healing process. My fifth and sixth footnotes are from Bessel van der Kolk's 
book, The Body Keeps the Score. This is a wonderful book. I've used it before in quotations. And, um, yeah, he says some really interesting things about being a survivor of trauma and how you can feel like you don't belong to the human race. It's like, okay, you're over here and everyone else is having a good time over there. And it, and it really sometimes feels that way. Um, this is what he says. Um, I'm going to quote a paragraph here, um, which embeds a couple of the quotes that I included in the red essay here. And he says, triggered responses, they're reactions, and they're irrational and largely outside of people's control. Intense and barely controllable urges and emotions make people feel crazy and makes them feel they don't belong to the human race. Feeling numb during birthday parties for your kids or in response to the death of loved ones makes people feel like monsters. As a result, shame becomes the dominant emotion and hiding the truth, the central preoccupation. They are rarely in touch with the origins of their alienation. The, that is where therapy comes in, in the beginning of bringing the emotions that were generated by trauma, being able to feel the capacity to observe oneself online. However, the bottom line is that the threat perception system of the brain has changed and people's physical reactions are dictated by the imprint of the past. This is on page 67 of The Body Keeps the Score. And what I like about that is um, Vanderkog talks about, you know, the brain mechanism of what's happening for someone who's having a trauma response or a trigger. And so um, it kind of explains what's going on and, and, and how you can feel alienated because of that. And then that makes you feel not part of society, like you don't belong to the human race. And then that creates more social distance, right? Um, my seventh footnote is from this article I found. It's by Tashel Bordere. She wrote it in 2017. It's called Disenfranchisement and Ambiguity in the Face of Loss, the Suffocated Grief of Sexual Assault Survivors, Sexual Assault, Loss, and Grief. This is from page two where um, she talks, so I quoted all the losses that people have, and I just thought she just did such a beautiful job of naming them because there are so many losses. I mean, we don't really think about it, right? Before we've had such a trauma, what losses there could be, and, and you know, the overriding one is the loss of worldview of your pre-assault life. I mean, there was a certain way I saw my life and how I was living in the world and being in the world and my ability to trust other people. Um, you know, I had other issues, but when it came down to it, there's a huge before and after for me in terms of my ability to trust other people, especially romantic partners. And that absolutely comes down to that seminal moment where I was assaulted and it changed everything for me. And so I think her talking about that identity and how it shifts and then how you feel afterwards when you're 
realizing, oh, my identity has shifted now and everything has changed. I mean, it's a dramatic loss that people may or may not understand. Um, she also says something quite beautiful about the notion of, she says, okay, this is beautiful because I didn't put the whole thing in there, but she talks about unearned entitlement and I quote her. An important premise underlying this article is the notion that support for loss is a basic right or unearned entitlement of survivors. And I think that's really important because we forget, right? We don't, we don't realize that really there needs to be an entitlement for survivors to get support and, it, and no one should have to earn it. And my final two footnotes are really just giving credit to Lin-Manuel Miranda for his song, It's Quiet Uptown, because I do use some of the lyrics. Um, and I just thank you for being here. I mean, this is a pretty heavy piece. It's talking about something no one wants to talk about. And so, uh, you know, the fact that you're here listening is a huge deal because you're witnessing me and you're witnessing you know, you're being open to being witnessed yourself and you're open to witnessing others because when we live in a society that doesn't speak about atrocities and violations and has judgments about different kinds of grief based on their type, it can be really lonely and isolating. So yes, I thank you for being here. And so um, if you want to see the footnotes, please visit my Substack, and you'll see the footnote listings at the end. If you would like to learn more about my work, please visit my Substack publication, Princess in the Pea Survivor Edition. Consider becoming a subscriber since this is a reader-supported podcast. A subscription will give you access to the latest articles on healing from trauma and how to deal with life's tests delivered straight to your inbox. You'll also have access to my archives. Your support means I can continue to research, write, and produce this work. Thank you for listening. Be well.